Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. I'm very happy to have three people uh, who are going to have lots of interesting things to say on this episode of Victor's Children about the politics of the pandemic in the Canadian state. So I'm just going to ask them to introduce themselves. Hi, uh, my name is Corbin, and I have itinerated through various activists, um, activisms and um, left politics over the years. Most recently, I've been primarily involved in Indigenous solidarity and sovereignty struggles, but I've also worked in the labor movement on pay equity issues. I've been involved in advocacy around public health care and um, a lot of popular education, curriculum development and design in uh, left circles broadly, socialist politics, and uh, I'm an act, uh, you know, a translator and a writer as well. Uh, I'm Daniel Sarah. I, uh, what am I? I'm a writer and editor. I'm the managing editor of Midnight Sun magazine, which is a new magazine of socialist strategy analysis and culture as the uh, subtitle or catch line or whatever that is uh, goes. Um, and I, uh, I organized with a group called Artists for Climate and Migrant Justice and Indigenous Sovereignty and was involved in coordinating a a uh, coalition, community coalition calling for a more effective uh, or a minimally effective, at, at least, um, COVID suppression elimination strategy um, called the Suppress the Virus Now Coalition, which was active um, during the, the second into third wave of waves of the, the, uh, the pandemic in Ontario, mainly. And my name's Nora. I guess for this conversation, what's probably most relevant is that I've just released a book called Spin Doctors, How Media and Politicians Misdiagnosed the COVID-19 Pandemic. And so during the, the pandemic, I have been uh, writing uh, a lot about uh, deaths and illness and what politicians knew and what they didn't do and how many people got sick and died unnecessarily. You're all people that I've learned a lot from uh, during the pandemic, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, and I'd like to start by having us cast our minds back over the period since early 2020 and asking the question, what are the most important things for listeners to understand about what governments and employers have actually done? Let's start with you, Nora. Yeah, I think that... You know, it's it's obvious if you're a socialist, and if you're not a socialist, then maybe it's a little less obvious. But everything about the pandemic reaction and response from every single government, regardless of their political colors, was intended to protect the status quo. And that meant protecting profits, protecting um, employers and bosses from dealing with massive um, time off work, from you know sick claim, uh, sick uh, paid sick days especially, and um, 
And it was often hidden behind uh, distractions. So hidden behind discussions about, you know, how safe is it to go grocery shopping or, you know, let's focus on your local uh, couple that owns the corner store rather than talking about that massive manufacturing facility that operates quietly behind the scenes. And the way the politicians did this uh, was the same in every province. It was it was very much through the, the distraction and thanks to the complicity of journalists that, that COVID spread massively in large congregate work settings. And the most visible of that were long-term care facilities and, and other healthcare facilities, but much more quiet and deadly were manufacturing, um, manufacturing energy projects, mines, construction, uh, those kinds of shipping and distribution logistics, those, those kinds of things that um, were, were rendered invisible to the average person. And so we would be told these stories of, well, all you have to do is wash your hands and maintain social distancing and wear masks while nothing seemed to change. Like no amount of our personal adherence to these rules was stopping the widespread, the, 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 the spread of COVID and widespread illness and, and death. Um, and so when you look at it in that way, that, that this was all about protecting the status quo and protecting profits, protecting, uh, you know, people's class status, upper class status, while allowing the, 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 the virus to run rampant among poor people and disabled people, among indis- um, indigenous people and racialized people, um, then it makes a lot of sense why governments chose the measures that they did or why they talked in the kinds of rhetoric that they used. Yeah. So I think Nora's point about the protection of the status quo is right on. And I think there was a conspiracy of factors. So like Nora said, uh, from the start, there was a strong emphasis on uh, handwashing and keep social distancing. And so, you know, the implicit uh, blame, the fault there lay with the individual who didn't follow those guidelines. And there was sort of an avoidance of talking about or or supporting the structural uh, approaches, particularly around ventilation or respiratory protection in congregate spaces, but also uh, facilitating paid sick leave, like Nora mentioned, so that workers could stay home if they got sick. And in fact, what ended up happening is because people couldn't afford to stay home, they went to these congregate work spaces sick, and uh, ended up um, obviously driving a lot of the the infections that we saw early on and, and even in later waves in the pandemic. But, you know, the thing is, there are so many strands in that because one of the things that was operating was uh, a denial, like the virus itself, the qualities of the virus itself, asymptomatic spread, the fact that, um, you know, it... Uh, the aerosol character of transmission. So most of the spread was happening um, in a, because of a small number of infected people. What did they say? 10 to 20% of infections are causing 80% of the spread. And most of that's happening in super spreader events. And so a lot of those, a lot of the dynamics of the virus were poorly understood from the beginning, but also there was a, a failure to apply the precautionary approach that, you know, in Ontario and Canada, especially, we knew very well from the SARS experience in 2003 that um, you know you can't really wait for the evidence to tell you exactly how a novel pathogen is spreading um, or what you know what the sort of what the maximum level of protection that you need to require is uh, in the workplace or like what what's the least protection you can get away with. You just have to start by assuming that well you know we're going to have to do as much as possible in case this thing is airborne, right? Because airborne is always the worst case transmission, uh, worst case possibility in terms of transmission. 
And, you know, even though the lessons of the SARS commission that followed the SARS experience were really directly about the failure to adopt uh, specifically the use of N95 masks and precautions around airborne transmission um, and recommended that, you know, we don't wait for the science to do that. All of that was thrown by the wayside. And in fact, much of the infrastructure that they brought in specifically in Ontario, but elsewhere in Canada, for example, uh, Public Health Agency of Canada, to sort of respond to those failures, in fact, was just co-opted and uh, the orthodoxies of a particular discipline, the infectious pre infection prevention and control doctors who largely have are of one mind. And, um, and this is just sort of like a contingent fact, especially in the English speaking world, that they're very schooled in a mythology of epidemiology and the, the founding myth of modern epidemiology around the discovery of um, uh, how cholera was transmitted, right? The famous story of Jon Snow and the hand pump in London. Um, when the hand pump handle was removed, cholera cases in the neighborhood started going down. And so that's sort of whereas before people had thought it was transmitted by miasma. So it's actually like baked into this discipline that has a lot of power within uh, policy setting uh, structures. Like we have these hospital embedded doctors who are setting policy for pandemic response for society as a whole, even though their own decision-making is heavily guided by the resource constraints of the institutions they're working in. So, you know, all of those things together kind of conspired to make, um, it, to make inaction on the structural level impossible. And the thing is, it didn't even need to happen in a way that really challenged capitalism. I mean, there obviously are authoritarian models of how it could have been done that we've seen in countries like China or Taiwan and South Korea, where the contact tracing was facilitated by pretty intrusive um, surveillance technologies. But, uh, you know, there are obviously also kinder models that could have been followed uh, as New Zealand, I guess, would be the, the example we might point to. And even within the neoliberal space, like you can look to the UK, which was, I guess, the one of the countries that most aggressively followed a letter rip kind of herd immunity, herd immunity approach, but was also really aggressive in terms of following the data, collecting and following the data. They do have the NHS infrastructure that makes that a lot easier and the data collection is very centralized but also very eager to adopt ne neoliberal solutions like mass massive rapid testing, right? Like you can get, everybody can get access to rapid tests in the UK. And if you need it, you can get a PCR test relatively easily and being very aggressive in their vaccination strategy. And so, you know, there's a range of responses um, and some of it is the resistance of capital to these more structural equity based approaches. Um, that shift the onus onto employer and governments. And some of it is just contingent factors that are different in each country. So I think, yeah, that's one of the things that's very difficult about this this pandemic and the policy response is that it's, it's pretty layered. Maybe this would be a point where I'd like to ask you, Daniel, Sarah, about your recent article against pandemic realism uh, in which you argue, um, this is an article published in, in Midnight Sun, you argue that uh, people are drowning in what you call pandemic realism, the way capital and the state have convinced so many of us that there's no alternative to the eugenics of mass infection. And personally, I think that the Omicron wave has taken this to new heights. Uh, since we're dealing with a variant that's so much more contagious, it adds credibility to the idea that there's no alternative 
to governments doing very little to limit infection. Uh, but you've written that that realism is a kind of capitalist fantasy made real by capitalist power, not inevitable, not necessary, and the experiences of the COVID zero territories prove it. So can you explain for listeners a bit more what your argument is there? Yeah, so I mean, pandemic realism is a play on, or that phrase is a play on capitalist realism, which is the name of a book by the theorist Mark Fisher. Um, and he used the, the term capitalist realism to describe the sort of sense that there's there's no alternative, the sort of um, structurally produced to the sense that there's no alternative to capitalism. Um, you know, a sort of in, in Margaret Thatcher's words, there is no alternative, right? That we are, this is the, the only sort of viable system. And so, um, yeah, it, it really feels like with the Omicron wave, this this um this sense of sort of institutionally structurally produced inevitability has become like all consuming um because there's been this like all you know sort of like various layers of 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 sort of state and capital have sort of consolidated around this argument that everybody's going to get it you know that everybody's going to get covid um but you know the, the thing that's really striking i mean which it just in general has been making me feel like pretty crazy uh for the past couple of weeks um it, because of it you know because of like the thing itself because of the argument itself but also because this has been the there has been an undercurrent um consistent with this sort of logic since the start you know like the the idea that it is it you know maybe not to the same extent but the idea that it is inevitable that you know, if not everybody, then lots and lots of people are going to get COVID, and many of those people are going to die. Many of those people are going to um, get seriously ill. We now know, you know, a, a huge proportion, or you know, varying estimates vary, but a significant proportion of people who who uh, contract COVID will experience uh, chronic illness as a result or long COVID. Um, and there was always, it's, it seemed like pretty well from the start, from March, to, you know, in in the global north, across the global north, this sort of assumption that. That was going to happen, um, and the best we could do would be to space it out. You know, this sort of the, the you know the uh, flattening the curve, um, that sort of image or you know idea um, was always sort of, as far as I understood it anyway, like an idea of um, just kind of spreading out the burden of of infection and suffering and death, so that it wouldn't overwhelm uh, you know underfunded healthcare systems all at once, but even like baked into that, you know, and at first, like, I mean, at first that sort of goal seemed to be approached in, you know, certainly, I mean, in, in, in Canada and parts of Canada with a, a kind of like surprising um, set of measures that seemed to contradict, uh, you know, like the, um, the logic of austerity, right? There were like all these sort of income supports that were, you know, sort of like served sort of most of all. And, you know, but there was like sort of uh, like decarceration of prisoners to like in, in, in pockets. And these things that seemed kind of unthinkable um, became sort of briefly sort of like thinkable as policy, it seemed like in the first wave. But even like beneath that um, sort of, you know, opening up of possibility um, and the sort of hopeful rhetoric of like, you know, we mustn't go back to normal, normal was broken and stuff. There was still this assumption that, well, you know, we really just can't like keep people from getting sick with this. Ultimately, it's a virus, you know, and at, at the same time um, around the world, there were states and regions of states and, and communities uh, that were effectively protecting their populations from exposure and in, exposure to infection with the virus. I mean, Corbin named 
a, a number of them. I mean, at this point, China is maybe the most notable sort of holdout just in terms of its sort of population and complexity. Um, but Taiwan also, uh, New Zealand is, seems to be still kind of like, um, you know, had, there was talk in, in the fall about New Zealand uh, walking back its, its COVID zero sort of strategy, but now it seems to be kind of um, controlling the virus again. So anyway, just like that, that sort of, that sense of, you know, there is no alternative to like letting lots and lots of people get sick. Um, it always seemed uh, contestable, debatable, and like maybe around, I, th I think for me, the, the point when that became really sort of like an, a really acute feeling was like the second wave when all the, the you know, what would seem like those sort of like hopeful breaks with austerity, you know, like the sort of shut down, like sh shutting down lots of sort of workplaces, not, not enough workplaces, but you know, like in, in the first wave and um, closing schools, rolling out CERB, decarcerating in pockets, you know, all of that seemed to collapse. And there was this sort of return to, um, you know, uh, a sort of, I want you to die for the economy, you know, as the, as the sort of great um, satirical poster says, uh, sort of like that, that seemed to come back. And so in the face of that brutal, um, you know, retrenchment or whatever of, uh, you know, uh, profit over over lives in this really sort of obvious, more obvious way. Um, well, you know, like at the time, like the Canadian maritime provinces were like effectively controlling the virus. So there's just this sense of like, like how can you say we must learn to live with it? You know, as as the the phrase sort of cir circulated. How can you say that? And how can you sort of construct this inevitability around that when there are so many examples uh, elsewhere in the world of um, you know millions of people living other lives, living differently? It's clearly a question of political will constrained by all kinds of structural factors. And so like, it just seemed, uh, yeah, like there was like a need to, and there remains a need, I think I would argue to um, represent that possibility and, and sort of, and try to, and try to organize and mobilize around that possibility since it has been um, sort of erased from the set of sort of like mainstreamed political alternatives in a lot of the global North. Thanks, Nora Corvin, either of you would like to respond to that? No, I, well, I think uh, I think uh, Daniel Sarah covered a lot of really interesting and important ground. Um, and I also think that what's what's very interesting is, you know, social media has played such a huge role in how we conceive of ourselves, our communities, each other, politicians, and media during this pandemic. And one thing that I've been very struck by is. Um, this idea of having to learn to live with the pandemic and how activists have really pushed back against that as, as, as Daniel Sarah just did uh, for good reason, for really important reason. But at the same time, us actually needing to, to learn how to live with this because this is real life and we need to find ways to be comfortable and take care of ourselves and get through it because you know, you know, most of us aren't the ones that have our hands on the levers of, of, of actually changing things. And so there's also been this incredible um, shift in discourse around who is responsible and who are we talking to when we say things like um, Omicron's mild, you know, uh, it's, it's different if I'm saying that versus if a director of public health <laughs> is saying that. And, um, but there, but everything's been flattened to kind of be the same thing. And, and that flattening has really created this idea that not only is there no alternative, but there's no, uh, options like there's there's not there's no, what what do you expect no one has any power no one can do anything about this everything's inevitable and 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 aside from take care of yourself don't get the virus 
there's nothing you can do. And I find that so fascinating. It's, it's been such a demobilizing, um, uh, alienating, isolating and disenfranchising, um, message that we've gotten from all channels that are kind of broadcasting news towards us, whether that's social media or, you know, mainstream media or, or whatever politicians and, um, and that's really destructive. And I, and I don't know what that's going to look like as we continue to go forward, because the impact of course has been that people are at the end of, of their limits. Like, like you can just see everywhere people are really, really struggling. And so that means like, we have to figure out how to help ourselves within our communities. We have to figure out how to create things that go outside of our communities, of course, because not everybody is you know able to be in community, in a community. And we have to then figure out how to force people that do have power to take certain actions that we, that we think they need to take. And, um, and I, and, and partly I think that there's just this widespread, like, oh my God, I don't have the bandwidth for that. <laughs> yeah. And, and before we get, I'd like to pick up on some of that later, but before we move on to that kind of thing, um, I think it's worth pausing. I was going to ask Corvin about this, um, to talk about the conscious strategic choices that governments have made around managing the pandemic, because I think for a lot of people, they see, you know, particular kinds of measures. And of course, they're often, you know, there is a lot of ad hocery going on, but that there are actually conscious, you know, strategic approaches in terms of epidemiology. And I'm wondering if you could talk about some of those things to help people understand, you know, mitigation, suppression, elimination, um, and what governments in the Canadian context have actually done and what they're doing in those terms. Yeah, so I think, you know, you could understand mitigation, suppression, and elimination basically as hot burn, slow burn, and no burn. And, you know, the elimination strategy is that basically starts from the point of view that actually um, it's worth it to eliminate this virus and transmission of the virus. And, you know, that takes you down a whole road of thinking of what, what do we need to do in order to make that possible. And that really requires a global strategy, right? So there are all sorts of things that follow from that, including considerations of global equity and so on, which obviously have been extremely wanting in how uh, the global North countries in the global North or high income countries have approached it so far. Uh, and mitigation and suppression, you know, suppression is sort of, we're going to allow it to simmer at a, a level that's not uh, burdensome on the healthcare system, that uh, you know, we assume that everybody's eventually going to be exposed. We're not aiming to eliminate it, but it's just less of a burden on those real pressure points in in the society. And that might involve more aggressive um, interventions to stop transmission, like it could involve, for example, uh, you know, stronger masking or ventilation requirements, right? But keeping a lot of the economic activity um, going. And then mitigation is really just like can we keep it just below the pain point of the system? And I think in practical terms, it's really been associated with this kind of idea of a herd immunity approach. And it's, it takes for granted we're not, either we're not going to be able to eliminate the virus or we're just not willing to invest in that, right? Like whatever that requires, we're not going to invest in it. Because like Daniel Sarah said, you have these sort of like, glimpses early on of like a more social or solidaristic approach with social supports and so on and sort of anti-austerity austerity possibilities um, and really to follow through that would have been, had to have been much more consistent um, you know and so I think that was just too much of a shift ideologically 
at the same time, you know, what's happened is like clearly the limitations of a purely neoliberal approach that doesn't do any of those things have been laid pretty bare. And I just want to circle back a little bit to another thing that Daniel Sarah said, uh, which is like a really striking example for me is uh, Taiwan, because really throughout the whole pandemic, Taiwan did not really limit incoming travel or international travel. They had very strict quarantine. Um, and, you know, their policy started from a point of view, what the Taiwanese CDC did early on in the pandemic, they just, you know, whatever official messaging was coming out of China, they just looked at the video and saw, okay, those, those people are in hazmat suits. So we're just going to assume this thing is airborne and proceed from there. And that was kind of their um, approach from the beginning, like a very precautionary approach. And they showed that you could be an up and running capitalist economy with relatively open borders and still also pursue uh, a zero COVID strategy, more or less. And so what's really interesting to me is the conspicuous absence of Taiwan as an example. Of course, it has been covered in the media, but it's such a stark example of um, that could be used as a counterexample to point out the policy failures um, domestically, particularly here in Canada. And, um, you know, I think like in Canada, it depends where you look. As Daniel Sarah already mentioned, the Atlantic provinces have been able to pursue a sort of a quasi-elimination strategy, but obviously it's not sustainable in the long run if uh, the rest of the world and, or the rest of Canada isn't doing it. And And they have been helped by the fact that they're less you know, just the epidemiology of it, right? Like they're less interconnected with the world than say Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal are. Um, but they've also adopted certain policies. They've been much more aggressive about testing, quarantine, and so on. So, uh, and then in the rest of Canada, you'd have to say that it's really been somewhere between mitigation. Um, it's largely been in the mitigation zone. And in some cases, pretty... Uh, verging on a herd immunity strategy, like in BC, just to circle back to one of the things Nora mentioned, like the prioritization of the interests of the major, of those major resource development projects, Site C Dam and um, LNG and um, the pipelines, they have really moved mountains to make sure that there was no visibility into what was going on in those facilities. Um, and that was a high priority, like those things were never going to be shut down. So, uh, but part of that is also just like the orientation of the government in BC uh, towards in the medical establishment and the government itself, that they weren't going to really be aggressive about this. And they did have this attitude that we're going to have to learn to live with the virus, which really um, conceals a lot of violence. And that's been like, a. it sounds very, yes, like we do, as Nora said. We're compelled to learn how, how to live with it, and we have to make choices for our mental health and so on. So we have to figure out how to protect ourselves. At the same time, you know, essential workers have ha had to learn how to live with it right from the beginning. And and then, you know, there's the way that, like, the vulnerable, um, whether because of age or, or whatnot, like this idea that we're going to let her rip and then we're going to shield the vulnerable it, or, or sacrifice people or, you know, just... Um, uh, yeah, essentially sacrifice people. It it really conceals a lot of horrific violence. So there, there's been a really disturbing way in which euphemism has been deployed in this pandemic to to just slip a lot of that through and normalize it. Um, I don't know if that 
I was just, yeah. just to come in, come in on that if I, if I can, just to respond also to a couple of things that I, that Nora said that I thought were really important. Um, Please. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I just, I kind of want to go back to something that, that you said, Nora, about like the, the need to, um, to, to figure out how we are dealing with these problems, like, in our in our lives and in our communities, given that um, you know we don't we uh, um, I can't remember if this was a phrase used or uh, you know we don't have our hands on the levers of power. We we don't have like individually anyway any sort of influence. Most of us on these sorts of like policy level uh, decisions um, and efforts to you know sort of like collectively pressure uh, states in in you know uh, the global north to implement these kinds of population level. Um, measures have not been very successful. Like, you know, we, like there's not been, I mean, like the COVID is airborne sort of like, you know, as even as like a kind of ruling class led campaign, you know, the sort of like doctors and, and public health people and stuff like sort of calling for airborne transmission mitigations for months, if not more than a year now. And it's gone very slowly, you know, to be, to be charitable, you know? So like, there's something that feels really important about like centering or figuring, you know, thinking about like, Okay, so what do we do? Like, you know, we can't we can't just sort of unilaterally, you know, like as as uh, people who believe um, that these policies are uh, eugenicist and uh, mass disabling and and all the rest. Like, you know, what what are the sort of ways we can, you know, either mitigate the effects of that sort of on on the kind of local level or um, you know, what do we would do with that? I mean, I, and I would say like the sort of the question of living with the virus, I mean, there's like, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a tweet, but there was like, you know, somebody tweeted, like, if we were really, yeah, we, you know, if we were going to live with the virus, you know, like, sort of that would mean like N95s for all, like, you know, sort of free and accessible rapid testing, um, you know, like closures when necessary, like living with the virus, you know, in a sort of just way would mean like taking it seriously, as opposed to, this kind of like deadly optimism, you know, this like this sort of weird, like, like I, I think so often about how the the ruling class or the sort of like capitals like um, normalization or the, the campaign to normalize the virus is tied to this like weird optimism about like, oh, it's probably it'll be fine. You know, this wave will be the last wave. Like, you know, we won't like like 40 percent or 50 percent or 30 percent of people who are getting Omicron today, like will not like suffer chronic illness as a result, which will, you know, like flow through to the healthcare system over the next, you know, decades. Like there's this amazing optimism that none of those sort of like catastrophic situations are going to come to pass, but to pass. So it like it kind of feels like uh, there's like there's a need for you know, any of us like or, sort of organizing or agitating or whatever for an alternative to not, I mean, talk about COVID zero in terms of like this utopian thing that um, we could do if only we had our hands immediately on, um, you know, on the levers of power, but to say like, you know, we are, we are so far from um, taking, taking the virus as seriously as that. We're so far from taking it as seriously as China's doing now. And, you know, sort of like the, the implied, um, you know, uh, like gravity of like a, of a city you know, of uncontrolled spread in China, they're going to such lengths to not let that happen. Like, how can we bring that sort of, um, you know, like, I don't know, like, I mean, pessimism is maybe not quite the right word either, but like that kind of, um, how can we take it that seriously? And then like, what um, do we do sort of individually, locally, and in terms of policy demands 
if we are, um, you know, like dealing with it as like a potentially existential threat. It, David, before you ask your next question, I just want to mention one quick thing because that's that was all very um, interesting and has been making me think. Like, is somehow that that optimism that you're talking about, Daniel, Sarah, is um, like it has managed to make optimism I find from other quarters, like like popular optimism, like be coded as denialism <laughs> with the pandemic. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen this. Yeah, okay. So you know if it like. If you if you dare to say something positive in some spaces, you might find people saying, "Why are you denying all of these horrors?" Right, as as if that's the the, the automatic thing that we're doing, and it's because like the the ruling class has so so just skillfully weaponized op- optimism, and it's made optimism their thing. And so, as you're struggling to find a word and you land on pessimism, it's funny because it's like that is what we're left with. And that's what you see is all like, no, no, like we're all going to die. We're all going to die with your policies. We're all going to die is like the, 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 the natural response to the overwhelming optimism of everything's fine. You're not going to die. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just we need to sort of struggle over like who gets to, who gets to like define optimism. Like it's like a struggle right. over like that terrain as opposed to like a sort of like decamping from that terrain. Yeah, totally. I'm wondering if this would be a good point for us to, sort of shift and start talking about the left and the pandemic. Uh, before that, is there anything else that you would like to get in in terms of talking about the ruling class and government responses and that kind of thing? It was all bad, I think, is pretty much all people need to think uh, about. Yeah. It was all bad. Okay. So let's talk about the left, starting with, if we can you know, be generous about it, the NDP. Um, so uh, <laughs> how would you characterize the responses of federal and provincial NDP leaders to the pandemic? Bloodless. Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, to be fair, yeah, I, I, I can't even bring to mind uh, an ex- any salient examples from the federal NDP. Um, they've been pretty lackluster on this. Provincially, I think it's pretty variable. Uh, you know, early on I, in Ontario, uh, Andrea Horvath was was pretty vocal around long-term care stuff, and so, but but it was it was reactive, and I'm not sure they had. Uh, necessarily, and, and neither did anyone else really, uh, a grip on the policies or the or the poli- uh, the possibilities uh, for managing the virus, and they weren't really willing to go out there um, ahead of where the consensus position was. They're also limited, I think, by whatever positions the unions were taking. Even though, like internally, a lot of the unions they had all the research very early on. You know, in the occupational health and safety. Um, wing of the labor movement, they're extremely knowledgeable about this stuff, right? Like, so they were on it right from the beginning. But uh, the problem was, I don't actually know entirely what the problem was. I think a lack of courage or a lack of a, a belief in an ability to to take militant action or do anything that would really force the changes needed, particularly in workplaces where they could have been demanding ventilation and N95s and, you know, maybe more uh, time. But, uh, you know, Given that the labor leadership wasn't willing to to take on that fight either with the government or with uh, some of its own membership, perhaps, um, and given also that the government's approach was to sort of co-opt them into little side tables where they talk about, well, maybe we can repurpose this factory to make N95s or whatever, you know, and that never went anywhere and it wasn't going to go anywhere. It was just a distraction. But I will say, though, that at least in Ontario, 
some of the NDP shadow cabinet, like Merritt Styles, for all that she is, uh, to my knowledge, kind of represents the Blairite wing of the party even to this day, uh, did really get on top of the education file, at least, and I think has played a relatively constructive role. But really, we can't talk about the NDP without talking about the BC NDP, which has managed the pandemic as bad as any government, badly as any government in in Canada, and really um, very much committed to a eugenicist, what I would call a eugenicist herd immunity strategy that, you know, their whole thing has been to treat it largely as a, a uh, okay, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but to a large extent, they've treated it as a public relations exercise. And so they've avoided testing where they could get away with not testing, whether that's in schools or just restricting access to testing. They haven't reported out the testing um, as on, honestly and fully as they could have. They haven't reported out hospital census numbers as they could have. They haven't reported school outbreaks and exposures. And, um, you know, they are really a global laggard right now in recognizing how the virus spreads, how you can stop that transmission. And they took up very early on this language of we're going to have to learn to live with the virus, which has now manifest like turned into statements of facts, fact that the virus is now endemic. That's the sort of the new language of it, which is that it's like a fait accompli. So um, we're out of the pandemic phase and now we're entering the endemic phase, which is far from clear epidemiologically. And I think one of the things that the NDP government has done there, they wanted to keep the resource projects operating, as I mentioned earlier, but also they didn't really want to wear it. So they let, you know, the chief medical officer of health, Bonnie Henry, who to this day, even though her popularity has plummeted, has like a pretty high approval rating, like 62%. She's been the face of it and it worked really well for them. They called an early election based on the popularity of her approach. They got their majority and, um, you know, since then, they 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 really haven't they've done fuck all is what I'm going to say uh, in terms of uh, aggressively managing the pandemic, let alone, you know, the, the wildfires, the floods um, or obviously not to speak of like the infringements on violent infringements on indigenous sovereignty and um, the mass arrests of uh, people engaged in civil disobedience around Ferry Creek. So. I don't think the record of the NDP or the left broadly has been great. And in BC, the unions particularly have been complicit with the government. I think the Nora can probably say more. I think the Quebec unions have been a bit more forward and full-throated in supporting the worker, their, their worker members. Before we switch, talk about Quebec, uh, any other comments about the NDP? Oh, like yeah. I, if this is a show of eight hours long, I would be digging into every single thing that Corvin just mentioned and elaborating further. Um, but I think that he did a good uh, overview of where things are. I, I I like to look at the NDP in a much more um, fundamental way, which is that this pandemic demonstrated that the project of social democracy, as practiced by the NDP, is completely vacant. Like there is nothing at all at the bottom of their ideology. And, you know, we can see this. Yes, Horgan is a really good example of, of how he's managed the pandemic in the exact same way that, you know, Scott Moe has or um, Doug Ford has. But also, like, there was just, there was never any urgency. There was not a single policy that was put forward or, or, or proposition that wasn't what we needed at any moment. 
And instead, what we got were these pocketbook kind of surveyed, um, focus grouped kind of policies that at the end of the day, weren't going to do anything more than maybe give small businesses a $500 more than the conservatives wanted or something. Um, and I, you know, I, I think I, I would untie them a little bit more from the unions because at least the, the unions had a very clear function and while they didn't do enough, um, what they did do focused on like protecting their workers on a very basic level and what, you know, they should have been more aggressive. And if we talk specifically about unions, I'll go into that, but they at least played a function that made sense. The NDP was like, they, they acted as if they were like the Canada health coalition or, a group of concerned citizens. Like they did not act like in Ontario, they're the official freaking opposition and they never acted like that was their role to, to confront Doug Ford and to, I don't know, take, take some little levels of, of radical action to say what you are doing is literally killing people. It just sounded like more of the, the, the kind of, of, of rhetoric, as I said, that you would hear from a, from a, like a, an organized group of parents who are mad that a school is opening rather than a political party. Um, and then of course the NDP had, you know, a, a federal convention that was pretty embarrassing and, uh, the BC convention, people were very frustrated around how that all uh, turned out as well. And so then I'm left with this question, like, what is the point of this, of this entity? Like, what do they exist for? Because they certainly don't exist to do anything useful at the best of times. And when, when, when you actually have spaces opening up where you can call for radical things because people are desperate and really interested to hear radical ideas to try and save us from this pandemic. Anything from maybe you should send people food if they're going to uh, quarantine, or maybe we should shut down a factory every other day, like something not actually radical, but compared to where the NDP in every province is would have been sounding like, I don't even know, like freaking the far left. Um, there was none of that. There was absolutely none of that. And I think that it's left a lot of, uh, of, of people who would vote for the NDP, active members, and just, you know, people who park their vote there for lack of a better location, scratching their head saying, okay, then what is the point of this party? And I would just add, I mean, the whole left said difficulty, um, this could be another whole part of the discussion, but, you know, in terms of ha coming up with a coherent alternative approach, um, but it's so striking when it comes to the NDP, the, the unwillingness to, to publicly criticize public health authorities, um, you know, the extremely deferential approach um, and not treating it as, you know, fundamentally a, a political thing requiring alternative policies, right? Yeah, um, doing politics. I'm, I'm nodding. I was, I've been nodding really loudly. I don't know if you could hear across the, the, the Zoom chat <laughs> and everything you're... Yeah, because it's like, like why... Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything that... Uh, you just said Corbin and Nora. And I think that the, like, there was such an opportunity, you know, the, the sort of like the, the levels, the, the degree and specificities of discontent that people have been expressing. Masses of people throughout the pandemic, there have been countless opportunities for, for a, an effective political opposition to make themselves, I mean, if you believe there is any value in, in you know, this kind of parliamentary politics from the left, surely some part of it is an acting as a kind of tribune of the people and, and being able to articulate within the sort of structures of the, of the state, um, these sorts of popular popular demands. And, you know, like people have been sort of handing the NDP, um, you know, like uh, these sorts of um, opportunities to sort of represent an alternative. And they've been uh, like, it's, it's baffling to me that the I mean, I think this is true to a great extent, federally and uh, provincially, like looking looking at, you know, to Ontario, where the NDP is in, oppos in opposition, um, but where the NDP has has been functioning as a sort of opposition, it's sort of uh, like 
it's been mostly uh, critiquing sort of like the existing offerings of the ruling party. It's been saying this isn't enough. We need a we need a, a you know a public inquiry. We need and in many cases their critiques are correct. Like they're you know they, they you know they, they're like you can't you certainly can't fault um, you know like uh, anybody for condemning the you know, like disaster in long term care uh, facilities. But it's like if you don't if if they were without representing an alternative vision. So also like going beyond the kind of like technocratic, like, you know, we will add this much to this budget. We will offer this service that the others are not, but without offering another um, vision of the good life, you know, like in the pandemic or like the best possible life, you know, maybe not the good life, you know, then of course, like people are not going to sort of like, uh, you know, be activated because it's, it's, you know, who's, who's activated by just like, I mean, sort of to, to your point from before, Nora, about, you know, the sort of like the value of or the, the kind of ambiguous value of just like pure pessimism or something as a political property. It's like who's who's activated by just like, you know, pure condemnation of the obviously condemnable, you know, bullshit. It's like and I think a lot I mean, I was, I wrote a little bit about this in, in that uh, essay that uh, David mentioned just uh, published last week um, about the relative success of the People's Party in sort of um entering into an, an equivalent sort of space on the right. I mean, obviously you can't make a strict equivalence there, but like the way that the People's Party and sort of like, you know, a, a certain kind of fascist or proto-fascist politics in general was able to kind of tap into um, people's desire for pleasure and people's desire for, uh, you know, for like social life and to be, and for an optimism that could be coherent. And in fact, it's very like the opt- the kind of optimism that they're offering is very coherent. You just deny that you will be uh you know sort of damaged seriously by COVID and you accept that the other people who will be damaged don't matter or don't matter as much or whatever. So it's like obviously that would not be the line or the the politics to um you know for the NDP to endorse, but the the like the failure to offer any sort of values-based um you know vision seems like just so sad and and you know and it's like the question that um you know like what is the purpose of the ndp like i mean for me the like the sort of really like the live question there that i'm i feel like i'm grappling with a lot is like i think in principle it seems possible that you could struggle over what that party is maybe in some sense there's certainly people who make this argument and like turn it into um a vehicle for a popular left politics um although the precedents for this seem like vanishingly uh slim you know but i i don't know i, I don't feel very optimistic about that firstly I don't, I don't think at this point yeah no i i i absolutely agree and i think uh you know the success of the anti-vax movement and you know elements of the alt-right in co-opting anti-vax or anti-mask or anti-lockdown politics i think all of that really speaks to first of all the vacuum on the left i, I mean you know, in your prefatory remarks there, David, you did say, uh, you know, let's not give the NDP too much credit for for being the left. But uh, yeah, I think there's a there's really a vacuum on the left, and that has become very apparent. And I think we really need to take seriously um, what that means and what the organizing challenge it poses for us is. And maybe it's less true in Quebec or less true in some other places, but certainly in the rest of Canada. And um, yeah, well, obviously the NDP doesn't have uh, an ambitious vision that they want to present, and the best they w- they want to do is uh, score points and practice retail politics. And I think one of the low points was Andrew Horvath getting out there um, and really 
hammering on the interests of small businesses and hair salons and how Doug Ford was failing hair salons and small businesses, which might have been true, and it probably was true. Um, but they were very conspicuous and not putting forward any kind of class politics or or really talking about uh, or organizing or or you know yeah laying out some sort of ambitious agenda to protect uh, working people, um, especially those who were having to go to work all through the pandemic. Well, and 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 let's not like let's not forget that Jugmeet Singh did the exact same thing um, and and actually argued against. Um, auditing the wage subsidy receivers, like just the most basic thing that we need to identify how much money these corporations are getting to, to, to subsidize their workers. And you had the, the federal NDP being like, this is too onerous for smaller businesses. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, I think that they made more promises related to getting military to do things that the public health uh, system needs to do than they did to actually, I don't know, do anything progressive by any kind of measure of that word. Nora, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what Quebec Solidaire has done in Quebec? Um, yeah. If it's policy orientation and whether it's done anything noteworthy around the pandemic? Yeah. Um, so so Quebec Solidaire has definitely not risen to the occasion in the way that I would have hoped to see the party do. Um, they In the early days, um, and then also because the, the, the government's been ruling under emergency orders, so they've been, there's been no debates, actually. They've, they've just been able to rule under emergency orders since March 2020. Uh, which, of course, Quebec Solidaire has been opposing, as as have the other parties. Um, but in the first couple of months, it felt like QS was like completely unsure about what it was supposed to do as well. And um, and there wasn't much, I would say, until about August 2020, when the party started to come alive. And, um, you know, they, they have managed to place themselves in a location in Quebec politics as, as being like the only together party uh, other than the CAC. Because the Liberals are still completely in disarray, um, the the PQ is in total disarray, and um, and so the you know there was a changing of the of the guard for who was the spokesperson from Manon Massé to Gabriel Nadeau Dubois. Nadeau Dubois is very effective, especially against Legault, and he gets under Legault's skin. So there's been like some good parliamentary jousting that has gone out of that scenario and, and into like broader awareness that you've got this party that's actually kind of you know, trying to change direction of government, but it isn't as if QS had this total um, pandemic plan that was um, amazing. You know, they, 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 they did a lot of work around making sure that undocumented workers who were in the healthcare system were given immigration status. And, um, you know, that was a big thing that they, that they focused on in the, in the fall of 2020. Um, and then there's been other demands. Um, but I, you know, one of the big differences between um, Quebec politics and the rest of Canada is Parties still occupy a lot of that formal space, and QS is very good at maneuvering in those formal spaces, whether it's using, uh, you know, whatever they have at their disposal within the parliamentary channels to actually make a big deal of something. And so they were able to raise motions. They've been able to force discussions, even though um, most of these decisions were being done by decree. Um, and, and they did that and, and looked like an opposition party. Like they really did look like an opposition party, which I can't say. Um, was the case for a lot of the NDPs and the rest of, of Canada. So I would say, you know, not amazing uh, at all, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a caucus of 10 people. And and I think four of them have had new kids in the pandemic as well. <laughs> so <laughs> that that plays a, a role, having so many people who are off on, on parental leave as well. Okay, thanks. We've touched on unions um, a little bit, but would you like to say anything more about 
union responses to the pandemic. Who are you directing the question to? That's an open question. <laughs> I guess I can start. Um, yeah. So as I said earlier, like, you know, unlike the NDP, the union still had a role that was very clear. Like they're, they're still having to do the legal part of representing their members. The members are being laid off. And so there was a lot of there's a lot of bureaucratic work that the unions had to do. And I think that the bureaucratic work allowed uh, a lot of union leadership to not have to do anything radical. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to get, you know, uh, grievances put through and forcing employers to provide like basic levels of protection. And that was occupying enough uh, to not have them actually say, you know what, let's walk off the job. Um, there was early action that, you know, it was, was, I, th- I thought would maybe signal that we would see accelerating, um, uh, or escalating, um, tactics like the the unions and the transit sectors just refusing to collect fares like that was a really early union response that was excellent and that was eventually adopted to be widespread and then of course was um just reversed once the summer came and covid went away and then never came back <laughs> which it should have come back as we had had several more waves um since that summer um but you know by by and large the the, the labor movement's been disappointing. Um, there has been no um, alternatives put forward that I think that give people confidence that the labor movement is there and, and has their back. Uh, the teachers unions, that's a really good example, especially where, you know, you there's there was just this like everywhere in Canada, Quebec is a little bit different because there was a bit more militancy from the unions, you know, that the nurses occupied bridges in Montreal and Quebec City and and had some pretty good um, a- actions to, to try and force um, their side of, of negotiations. But in, in a lot of the, the, the rest of Canada, unions operated, again, as if they're just lobby organizations or as if they're just concerned citizens and, and with the expectation that politicians will come to their senses. Um, and so one of the things that's been so frustrating to watch, especially in Ontario, um, is a lot of people on the broad left appealing to like Doug Ford to do the right thing. And it's like, I, 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 did you not get the memo? Like, why are you saying that? Of course, he's not going to do the right thing. The guy is hardwired to not do the right thing. And so rather than taking um, decisions into their own hands, even if those decisions would put them in opposition to the law, uh, there, there's just, there was just no appetite at all to do this. And so you have these last minute decisions from the government uh, in teaching to just be like, okay, schools are closed or, or okay, they're, they're now open. And it was just like so disrespectful to the teachers, but it wasn't as if the unions were like, you know what, let's ignore government directions and do stuff on our own because without us, there is no school. Um, and that was a really uh, uh, disappointing missed opportunity because it really should have been a moment of radicalization. And, and instead you just have a lot of anxiety and fear and waiting for governments to just do the right thing. Yeah. And yeah. I think uh, the, um, Nora, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the nurses' union, one of the nurses' unions in Quebec, was actually pretty early, and they went to court to get uh, N95, like easier access to N95s for their members, and they succeeded. Uh, And I don't think, I mean, ONA tried the same thing here. ONA's not a union, but ONA tried the same thing in Ontario. But I think, other than that, none of the nurses' unions anywhere in the country were as on top of that as the Quebec union was. Um, I do think the Ontario teachers unions were at least vocal about needing better uh, safety standards when I I can't keep track of all the waves because also the way that's numbered is different in different places. But in the fall of 2020, already they were asking for, um, you know, better ventilation, better masking and, and rapid tests. And um, so, you know, that's about it. But like out in BC, 
they have been gaslighting their membership. The nurses union has been really bad in gaslighting its membership and essentially supporting the government line. BCTF was actually, BC Teachers Federation was also quite good um, in the first year of the pandemic. And then this year, they too have buckled. So um, it's pretty variable. I think the one surprising thing, which uh, we were actually talking about a little bit pre-show is like, I think that, you know, what's really weird to me is that a lot of union leadership are pretty secure in their position. It's very hard to dislodge them. You know, union democracy has been gutted in a lot of unions. And so even if there is a substantial fraction of your membership that's very unhappy, it's hard for them to do much about it. Uh, yet the, you know, in the AT, the Amalgamated Transit Union, which uh, here in Toronto is fighting vaccine mandates, like, it's very hard to understand that because it's really about 1% of their membership who are are not vaccinated. Um, and other unions are either opposing the vaccine mandates or reluctant to support them. And I think we can talk about vaccine mandates because I think there is a challenge there broadly for what a left position could look like and like, and what is a vaccine mandate for, um, you know, and my own position has changed on that. But I, there's like a fear in the union leadership of very small fractions of their membership uh, that's hard to understand given that uh, the leadership themselves aren't threatened. So it's it's weird. Um, but yeah, there's been a really striking lack of leadership from from unions on, on a lot of this throughout the pandemic. Yeah, and I, I think it's just highlighted things which are certainly not new uh, in terms of how in so many unions there's been a real abandonment of uh, actual shop floor workplace organizing in favor of simply relying on the grievance procedure and arbitration. And so, you know, in the when there, if there isn't already a culture of workplace organizing and, and militancy there, it's difficult to, uh, you know, be organizing direct action around health and safety issues during the pandemic. And the same, the lack of a, a coherent alternative left uh, policy approach to the pandemic um, it's been a problem for the whole left. It's certainly there in terms of the unions as well. So that criticisms of individual things, specific things that governments do is easy. But, you know, arguing for a coherent alter alternative approach has been has been absent for the most part. So, David, congratulations to your union and their strike, because that was pretty, um, it was pretty impressive. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, it was good that the strike was able to proceed the way that it was. And I'm very glad that it, um, you know, there were some people who thought we should wait until 2022 before um, <laughs> proceeding. It's a very good thing that we struck when we did. But um, that's the University of Manitoba Faculty Association. Um, I want to, before we go further, to say something about the fragmented forces of the, the radical left, um, you know, people who are anti-capitalist or at least consistently anti-neoliberal. Um, and whether you have any thoughts about the response of the radical left to the pandemic that we'd want to put into the discussion. I mean, I think it's I think it's inseparable in some ways, or or not. Maybe it's most you know, best not to separate it from the question of of organized labor and militancy in in um, you know in those sorts of uh, uh, in those sorts of ways. Because it's like you know you would never know. Sorry, my thoughts feel are a little bit disorganized on this question, but I, like you would just like to look at the like the the union response to the degree of social murder we've seen, you would never know. I mean, just to echo points that, that Corvin and Nora have made, you would never know that they have any leverage. You know, it just, it seems like it's, it's all um, 
you know, like moral suasion. It's all sort of statements and petitions and letters. And, and it's like, and I think there's definitely a place for that into, you know, sort of uh, taking, taking the, the pulse of, of where people are at and, um, and, you know, building um, a, a sort of sense of a majority behind a given demand. But the, the incapacity to escalate beyond these sorts of tactics uh, has been really, has been really sort of telling. And I mean, like the Alberta Federation of Labor uh, adopted a COVID, a call for COVID zero, like as a sort of framework um, in uh, like early 2021, I guess, like late 2020, early 2021, so second wave. Um, and they were, they were, I mean, the Alberta Advantage podcast, like uh, I've talked about this in one of their episodes, they were like gathering signatures online in a petition, like to try to see like, you know, among Albertans, like who would be willing to like, you know, um, take action, go into the streets, who'd be willing to like escalate to the possibility of a general strike or something like there was like language like this in this sort of like online form. Um, and they were just trying to like gather the information about like, you know, how many people would be sort of down to do that, but it didn't seem to go anywhere, you know? And I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's not, you know, it's not, that's not the fault of the, um, like there's not the capacity, you know, for that kind of escalation. That's not necessarily any, any one, you know, bureaucrat's fault or something, but I think it's, I think that the the, the result um, or or an effect that I, I mean I feel, feel like I have sort of observed on the broader left is that it's there is the sense that the only battles that are winnable um, really are sort of hyper local um, you know um, uh, struggles that often are responding to a sort of acute crisis. So I mean, there's been some really effective, like really I think successful. Um, tenant organizing in Ontario, among other places, and really, really important and effective uh, encampment defense um, uh, mobilizing and organizing in Toronto, in Halifax, um, I, I, like in, in other cities in, in, in Hamilton. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm leaving out lots of places where that's been happening to defend uh, unhoused people. And it, it, I think because these sorts of broader demands, you know, have felt like around school safety or something have felt so sort of unwinnable and it's been felt so like impossible to kind of activate the sort of like mass withdrawal of labor or or withdrawal of participation in some form that would make that would create leverage for those demands um i think the argument that really you know just like like organize where you are like organize your community organize your apartment building if you live in one you know like and, and do that sort of work um has been really com compelling, and that, like those have been sort of you know the wins for the le the broader left have been few, and I think many of them have been there, you know, have been in sort of holding off, you know, like the uh, you know the, the police assault on encampments and and this sort of thing. Um, the the trouble is the challenge is without um, it like again it's sort of as I read that situation like without um, broader layers of um, mobilization you know socially those um that organizing ends up being very isolated and so it can win but its wins are so vulnerable to you know sort of um so just so, so criminalization to all kinds of other sort of um you know recapture by the state and by capital so i i think that you know like i think it's really important to sort of like like honor that organizing that's been happening and and also like ask about why um you know or it's been so hard to um create the conditions for like wildcats you know for to, to create the conditions for like more broad like broad-based um you know withdrawals of labor and other sort of tactics that could that could uh that could apply pressure and you know the other thing that we 
I think could uh, note is that um, there has not been produced anything coming out of the radical left in the broad sense. Something that would be like, you remember the Leap Manifesto of 2015, right, as a climate justice document um, that, uh, you know, tried to play out a kind of comprehensive alternative uh, to the situation uh, in terms of the climate and social crises at the time. You know, nothing like that, uh, which would have had a broad resonance putting forward a coherent alternative approach to the pandemic has, you know, come forward. And obviously, given that, you know, not too many people on the radical left who knew much about epidemiology before the uh, the pandemic, it's not surprising that it's difficult to come up with, a you know, an alternative approach like that um, in the conditions of the pandemic. But I think we should at least note that, right, that the radical left has not come up with that kind of some of an alternative, which you could at least argue for, and that well, could it, inject it, it, into the debates around things. I mean, the Suppress the Virus Coalition, like that statement that we published last January, was a sort of like document of that sort. The problem is we had no leverage, right? We, it, was, it was just another statement in a, in a crowded field of statements, you know, that had a lot of sort of like a, a really cool range of, of different sort of community partners and, and some like labor buy-in around it, including like really importantly also, I think, to name like, you know, groups like Ontario Education Workers United, which are sort of like organizers like within the unions that are trying to do their own thing to move the unions to have more sort of like interventionist capacity. So, I mean, like that work seems really important and it's been growing during the pandemic. But the problem is that like, you know, again, I don't think there's been a lack of that kind of vision. We just haven't had any way to to build power. I, I think it's really important, though, to mention that there, there the, the movements around disability justice, I think, are the exception to this. And I don't know whose fault it is that they didn't coalesce in the like the the broad like radical left didn't do more to jump on the calls and the ideas and the actions of disabled activists in Canada. But the mobilization around uh, the expanded uh, medical assistance in dying legislation was really amazing. And I don't know what it would have looked like had there not been a pandemic hanging over everybody's heads, but the 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 groups that got involved the actions that they chose to do to you know respect the the um public health orders and to bring people together from around the world and all across Canada um it was really really great and and a lot of the people who are involved with that have also positioned themselves as uh, or have become um really important higher profile voices talking about all of the issues that the pandemic touches, um, speaking from the position of people who live with very similar um, uh, social distancing measures or, or you know, other kinds of public health related um, aspects of their lives. And so they're able to speak through like, you know, years and years of experience. Um, and, and so what I'm like, what I grapple with is like, you know, you know, the, the movements that did exist and, 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 and it's certainly movement for uh, disability justice like why didn't they get taken up by other organizations and why wasn't there uh, an ability to coalesce uh, around that or around, you know, as, as Daniel Sarah has mentioned, the, 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 the encampments or other kinds of radical organizing. And, and I, I, I struggle with an answer. I mean, I think the, probably the most obvious is everyone was tired and no one wanted to like, or not wanted to, but no one had the capacity to do certain things that, that needed to be done. And us all being isolated from one another is also, you know, a huge problem because we have to organize online and then that's, and that's fraught. But, I, you know, having this conversation without mentioning disability activism, I think is, you know, we have to, we really do have to. Um, and um, and then, of course, um, Black Lives Matter and and the movement for Black Lives that um, really marked 2020. So, there, there, you know, as was just said, there's, there's no shortage of ideas. It's that 
there, there doesn't seem to be that capacity to then take hold and turn them into anything that we can organize around in a, in a longer term way. Yeah. Thanks Nora for uh, bringing up black lives matter. Cause I was, I was just reflecting as I was listening to Daniel Sarah before, and then, and then to you, um, that there's really been a lot of a, really a remarkable amount of mobilizing and activism, particularly I think in 2020 with black lives matter. Um, and, but also the encampment movements, which were uh, not just here, but also there were things like the Seattle autonomous zone and however fraught that was, but, um, but, you know, and yes, the disability justice movement was, uh, their, their movement, their campaign was incredible. And I, I too wonder why, um, that, that those politics were not taken up more broadly, particularly as they speak really quite centrally to how uh, a lot of the pandemic has been managed. And, you know, I think many people have learned from that, many people on the left have learned from that framework in terms of thinking about um, what's going on with the pandemic and, you know, the sort of eugenicists or crypto eugenicist policies. Um, yeah, but, and, but like you said, some of it is just simple in terms of David, like your question about this, the, the, the left, radical left or the fragments of the radical left laying out some sort of positive proactive agenda to be honest i wonder if many of us were we're tired we're tired of being on zoom we're tired of this um you know how organizing takes place in the pandemic and you know i think that might we don't see that level of mobilization that we saw uh earlier in 2021 and 2020 that could just be contingent because of what's happening politically but um but I also wonder, are we falling uh, for the same kind of optimism or hoping that, well, maybe this wave is the last one and, you know, we're not really going to have to deal with it. And I think we don't really know, uh, you know, there's still so much uncertainty around it. Um, but it would be clear, it'd be good to be clear about the left's failures so far and to really be ready at least to respond to what might happen. Well, that turns us... Yeah, that turns us very nicely to the question of what lies ahead. And I was going to ask you, Corbin, if you have any thoughts about the future of the pandemic, you know, epidemiologically. Uh, you know, I would have, I think based on my reading and listening, uh, probably almost every virologist was extremely surprised by Omicron. I mean, there are a lot of mysteries around it. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it, I think capital is hoping that this is the variant that solves a lot of problems for them. Um, and I think a lot of people are hoping, and, you know, it, it, it was really, it was sort of disturbing to watch how almost right away, one or two voices from South Africa saying, Hey, this thing's really mild. I don't know what y'all are panicking about were amplified and taken up everywhere, including by people on the left, you know? Um, and, uh, and and I've, I've noticed more and more that people on the left are kind of invested in this. It, it's really, it's pretty mild. Uh, the only people getting sick are unvaccinated, or I've, I've also heard this from the four people with comorbidities, which is like a very coded, um, ableist, eugenicist way of thinking about it. But um, I think that uh, it would be, uh, it'd be foolish to speculate. I don't, I don't think... Clearly, we haven't implemented the structural um, supports and changes required, although I will say that this panic, you know, suddenly now, oh, uh, yeah, Omicron, um, everybody wearing N95s now. Like, that just sort of all happened all of a sudden. 
um, and it's being normalized by elites and and you know bourgeois elites and governments, even though they've known about this for a long time. Just to circle back to something that happened that we sort of um, touched on earlier, um, you know, for example, one of the interesting things is how much of this was already known. And if we want to be conspiracy, you know, there is a sort of conspiracy in terms of how they've they've talked about the pandemic publicly. So. To take the Toronto Transit Commission, for example, they and the union were already talking. They they knew all the air exchange information about the trains and streetcars and and buses, and they were putting in uh, MERV 13 things in in the bus uh, HVAC systems and so on. So they were all thinking about this as an airborne uh, pathogen and how to mitigate that and communicating to the membership, like this is, for example, on the subway. Every time the door is open, if there's a cross draft, there's a 50% air exchange, and they told that to their workers. So, like, and that was in 2020. And uh, the film industry and the sports industry, as we talked about before the show, a lot of them have been managing uh, to keep the doors open, testing three times a week. If you're not on camera, you're wearing an N95, ventilation, portable HEPA filters. That's been since 2020 for a lot of the big money productions, and they've been operating. So, like, Capital knows how to do it. The governments know those things are happening. Um, and they've chosen not to communicate that or implement that more broadly. And now Omicron's created a panic. Is this going to stick? I don't know. Like now that the public has the idea, because well, I see on the street, I'm going to say like a lot of N95s are KN95s now. Um, are we in Are we in a better place for whatever's happening next? I don't know, because there's a lot of social damage that's already been done. And I think we really have to take stock as we're looking forward of like the damage to the healthcare system and what that means for access, like the incredibly skewed access to healthcare, um, and and just how just just how disparities in wealth have increased over these last two years. I mean, so much has happened socially that's actually quite damaging. Um, that and I don't think we can count on this sort of like turn away from austerity to last, um, especially if anti-inflation becomes a driving force in politics. Like, I think the left really has to get it together uh, on a lot of this. And sadly, right now, we don't really have the vehicle for it. So where's the virus going to go? I don't really know, but they haven't, there's still no global strategy around it. There's still like, even in a lot of wealthy countries, a very hard percentage of people who are not vaccinated and probably aren't going to get vaccinated. And, um, you know, all of those factors, I think, leave leave us in a situation where it's like very unpredictable how it's going to go. So sadly, we have to figure out how to organize in this time and this space. And before picking up on that thread, I want to just bring up the question of endemic COVID, right? Because I think we'll probably hear more about this. And um, there's a, it was a, there was a blog post that uh, the epidemiologist Ray Watt Dianandan wrote in early November of 2021, uh, in which he wrote, it's governments who will decide when or if COVID is endemic, because they will determine when the level of sustained transmission is low enough to be toler- tolerable from both a political and health systems perspective. See, this isn't just about the epidemiology, it's about public tolerance. Any of you have any thoughts about that? Um, and how governments and employers may proceed after the Omicron wave in, in relation to it? Well, I think I just like to pick up in, I mean, in that connection and also just to sort of uh, plus one, well, um, also just to um, 
Yeah, like the, the question of like, like disabled people have got the pandemic, I, I, like like the analysis has been like totally like accurate from the start, right? I mean, there's like, there's so, and it, it feels like given the like weight of new disability that long COVID is by all reliable estimates producing and, you know, who knows exactly what the rate of long COVID will be with Omicron, um, but given how many newly disabled people, potentially permanently disabled people, are being produced by these policies of mass abandonment, it feels absolutely essential to center disability justice organizing and movements and analysis in in all of this. So yeah, I can't agree uh, strongly enough with uh, Nora's point about that. And also, yeah, I, I just I just want to kind of like like plus one both because the, the the question of like you know, like like this uh, sort of historic abolitionist movement for in defense of Black lives and against the police erupting in the middle of the pandemic. I feel like how we articulate uh, and and act on a pandemic sort of politics that is abolitionist that doesn't, you know, end up handing more power to the state that will be used to uh, police already hyper police communities um, it needs to stay front of mind. So it's like, I, you know, I don't. I, yeah, sorry. I think I'm, I'm trying to mix together two different points there. But but as to the question of like you know where do we go from here? I think figuring out like how to organize around long COVID and how to sort of like organize and support um, the millions of people who are already affected and will continue to be affected by by that uh, feels really important because it's like how do you like how do you talk about endemic the virus being endemic if it, if it, you know each sort of if it it's sort of ongoing circulation continues to um cause this kind of long-term damage to such a high proportion of the people it it uh it, it, it meets um i i, I have really I have a really hard time sort of making sense of that well and to go back to this uh to the quote that you just read david um i think that the logic of like everything like okay it's gonna be considered endemic we can also say that it'll be considered no longer a crisis once its impact enters into our our, our uh, health capacity and from the start of this pandemic, that is how every single public health and politician, uh, public health figure and politician in Canada has been talking about it. In Quebec, we would hear every single day the hospital capacity that we had and that we could reach before we had a level of seriousness that the, that the province deemed to be uh, critical. And then a year after that, um, there was a comment made by now former uh, director of public health, Horatio Arruda saying that um, the rates of infection that we had last January, because the infection was uh, was not circulating in long-term care anymore because of the vaccine uh, campaign starting there, could be six times higher what it was at that moment because the people who'd be getting it would just go to the hospital. They wouldn't die. Um, and, and Aruda's comments were met with a lot of anger, as you can imagine, but it exposed the logic that has been operating from day one about this pandemic. And the problem is that the pan that the virus hasn't entered into that logic. The virus is like, OK, well, I see your hospital capacity and I don't care because I'm a virus. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the Omicron uh, surge is is putting that that strain on the hospital system that means that we politicians would never say that it's endemic in Canadian society yet because we are in a in a massive crisis of 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 um of capacity within the healthcare system but none of the ways that we're talking about this and any of the ways I've been talking about this referring to how they're talking about this takes into account anyone's lives like it doesn't it doesn't actually care 
if if 10 people get sick, if those 10 people can have ventilators. It doesn't it doesn't care that being on a ventilator is like really disabling and horrible and probably means that you eventually will die uh, because, uh, you know, that, that enters into the logic of the of the spreadsheet that public health has developed and has determined that, OK, as long as we don't hit 20, we're still OK. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm glad that you read that quote, because I think it's very instructive to remind ourselves that we've got politicians who are managing a system. They're not, not trying to stop people from getting sick or from dying. They're just trying to manage the system. And if we are scared out of action, if we are put into locations where we can't take action or we're fighting for our lives every single day and so we're too busy to do anything different, that suits them very, very well because then they don't even have a population to manage at the same time. Any other thoughts about where we are as socialists and other radicals going forward? I, I can talk a little bit about the future because I think that, um, you know, on the side of what, what this pandemic looks like uh, in, in a, in a, I don't know, in a couple of months or a couple of years, like all I can say is what I hope and what I hope is not science. <laughs> I mean, I hope that the virus disappears tomorrow. So that's not a super helpful um, analysis. But that's certainly what I, what I hope. Um, but what I do see on the positive sides of things is that this, this moment has radicalized a lot of people um, and it's, it's radicalized a lot of people in a very good way. People are finding new movements. They're finding new analyses, they're finding online reading groups, and they're actually doing the research necessary to understand the process of social change. So the process of building social movements and putting pressure on, on different parts of society to actually try and force some kind of change. And I am really excited about that because I, I, I don't know what that, that, that turns into. And obviously that's where we play a really important role trying to create those spaces to then orient people's energy and action and desire for change into something, you know, useful, concrete and effective. But certainly in the last few years, the number of people who've been in touch with me asking for advice on just what to do um, has skyrocketed. It's been really incredible. And I imagine that's the case for every one of us who's doing this kind of work. You know, you put yourself out there and then people are obviously going to ask you like, hey, I live in Victoria, what should I be doing? Um, and so that's, a, that's really, really, really great. And that is a huge, that, that, that creates a huge task for those of us on the radical left who understand that we then need to organize all of these new and excited individuals who've been radicalized by what they've seen in this pandemic. I, yeah, I really agree with that. And I think, you know, some of this is anecdotal and just by feeling, um, but there does seem to be a pretty widespread sense that uh, this system is fucked. It doesn't really care about people. And it hasn't been, it hasn't shown itself to be capable of responding to a crisis like this. There has been a lot of official, not only mismanagement, but to some extent dishonesty, which, which I think people feel. So I think, you know, a lot of that has led to uh, radicalization. And I'm also uh, hearing and seeing people who are joining breeding groups, joining, you know, some of the old left parties and including the CP or whatever, because they're looking for some other political home. I don't, and that's not to say that I think those uh, vehicles are uh, necessarily what we need to, um, to use this opportunity or to build on this. But I do think it speaks to like a widespread sense that this system is really fucked and if they can't manage this crisis, like which was a pretty serious crisis, right? For on on many levels, um, what are we going to? How can we imagine that they're going to address climate change? And you know, we just look have to look south of the border, and even a relatively um, uh, mainstream plan to address climate change has no chance of succeeding. So, 
yeah, I think we have to, you know, those of us who who are on the left, we really one thing that we really need to do is I don't want to use this phrase, but yeah, we need to facilitate spaces. I was going to say intellectual leadership, but I, you know, facilitate space. We need to really inject uh, an analysis that can set the stage for some of the organizing needs. But I think we really need to be intentional about what kind of organizing, what kind of forms of organization uh, need to exist to address these crises at the scale and at the level they need to be addressed. And that has to be uh, taking on the state at some point, not electorally necessarily, but just like an orientation towards the state and understanding that the state as it's constituted is not capable of responding effectively to to these crises and how what's our way out of the maze um i don't think any of us know but i think we have to be thinking at that level um and especially we don't know like a lot of the apparently redistributive policies that they they brought in were really about just keeping the banks afloat right like it all got floated back to a lot of the support got transferred to landlords who then paid the mortgage with it and that paid the bank. So when they feel, and I think they've decided this is going to be endemic, they're trying to, they're trying to make it endemic, right? Like they don't, they have no, I'm talking about governments and capital have no appetite for elimination. And so I think they're grinding and we can feel that personally, probably in our, in many of our um, social circles where people are just like, I'm done with this, right? Like I'm done and I, I can't maintain this level of vigilance or whatever for the rest of my life. So I think that's the the place we're in. Unfortunately, um, it is possible to still adopt an elimination strategy. I think that governments have decided that's uh, not where they want to go. And so we have to respond accordingly. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I agree with a lot of what's been said. And I mean, I definitely feel like there's it's an, there's an opportunity um, to bring together a lot of people who are really angry uh, about what's been about what's been going on and uh, to try to in some ways and I mean not to say yeah I don't know to try to sort of find ways to knit together these really um, extraordinary movements that have been sort of you know either that have come into being or that have been you know that are have been resurgent or just more activated during the pandemic so that the power of all the different sorts of movements be they disability justice sort of oriented or abolitionist or um, focused on uh, more directly sort of redistributive kind of politics, um, you know, sort of centering uh, employer paid sick days, really important demand. Like how do we sort of bring, uh, build coalitions in some way or, you know, like organizations that can concentrate the power of all these disparate um, hubs of activity. And I would say that, I mean, maybe as a uh, optimistic note to uh, to sort of wrap things up with, if we're wrapping up, um, the student walkouts that are happening right now um, around their planned around Manitoba and in lots of uh, U.S. cities have been happening in Chicago today. I think it was in Chicago and in Boston, New York. Uh, students in Oakland are threatening to strike next week if their demands for better safety measures are not met. I mean, like this sort of new wave of like at this point sort of student uh, militancy specifically about kind of COVID policies, like specifically about what is acceptable as sort of health and safety measures and what is like fucking ableist and like not like a baseline that we should settle for. Um, I find that really, really hardening. I mean, I found like, like these past weeks of sort of like 
you know, full bore eugenesis where all you, you're all going to get infected, whether you like it or not. I found, I found them really, really hard to process. And, and the sort of, I mean, I, as, as have so many people and like this sort of surge in student refusals, I think, um, are like the best thing that's happened in months, you know, in terms of these sorts of um, responses to, to pandemic social murder. So um, I'm hopeful that that could spread and that could be a sort of way that, you know, sort of responses from below continue to uh, develop. And what's great about those is that they really expose uh, the hollowness of the, the, you know, the adult position, right? The sort of um, the whole discourse around the mental health of children, as if children can, you know, uh, just go back to school when they're not safe, their teachers aren't safe, their parents aren't safe, as if that world doesn't affect uh, their mental health. And and yeah, so I I thought that I've been it's been amazing uh, seeing that. I I agree with you fully. Um, the question is, can yeah, can we can we can we build on that and um, more broadly? Like uh, that's they're really they really are leading the way. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. <laughs>